Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, after next week, more than one million bottles of product will have entered Canada. Health Canada says a million bottles of children's medication will arrive in Canada by next week. We'll hear from a pharmacist about how, how far that will go in dealing with the crisis faced by parents this winter. We had seen a trend of it getting worse and escalating and escalating. The public inquiry on the Emergencies Act prepares to hear from federal ministers and the Prime Minister himself. Our journalist panel reflects on what we've heard so far and what to expect next week. We know what needs to be done. We just now need the will to do it. And, that's and this week, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith started her promised shakeup of the province's health care system. We'll look at where it's all headed. But we start with a much-awaited announcement from Health Canada on Friday that a million bottles of children's dose acetaminophen and ibuprofen are expected to arrive in Canada next week. Manufacturers have ramped up production to record levels, but demand has continued to increase and significantly outpaced the supply. As a result, we've worked with manufacturers to allow access of foreign product to supplement Canada's supply. We've now received and approved three proposals to import foreign product and supply has started to enter the country. After next week, more than 1 million bottles of product will have entered Canada to supply hospitals, community pharmacies and retailers and medications will start appearing on store shelves starting early next week. Friday's announcement by Health Canada will come as a relief to the millions of Canadian parents who have been facing a complete lack of children's painkillers and medications as the flu, RSV, respiratory virus and COVID-19 have filled the country's emergency and pediatric wards. But when will the average parent have access to the medications? And what about the shortages of numerous other type of over-the-counter and prescription medications? To discuss it all, we're joined by Pam Kennedy. She is a pharmacist in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. Ms. Kennedy, first of all, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. I'd like to get your response as, as a pharmacist and working in the community. When you hear the news from, uh, from Health Canada, finally, that a million bottles are on their way, uh, are you optimistic that you'll see them anytime soon? Or what's your reaction? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, yesterday we did hear from our provincial association um, that we were um, to expect this foreign supply sometime over the next week or so. Uh, so today's announcement uh, by Health Canada is certainly encouraging. Uh, how short have you been? Because we've heard stories uh, of people have, who've been facing shortages for five months, like since last, I don't know, April or May. Yeah, certainly. Um, we've seen that trickle effect where we've seen some supply um, and then it and then it go and then supply trickle back in and then it go. And I would say that's been ongoing um, since the spring or early summer. Um, we currently have no supply um, on hand for patients. Uh, and certainly when it has been uh, coming back in, we have been limiting uh, the number of uh, products that patients are able to buy. So when you're completely out of stock, uh, I understand you'd probably be trying to make up a formulation, children's formulation from adult product of uh, acetaminophen and ibuprofen for kids who've got fevers or in, or in a bad way? Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, at pharmacies across Canada, and uh, it's not at all pharmacies, but uh, at, at some, 
you know, one of the the um, great things that has come from this, from uh, you know, not that there's any great things that has come from this, but one of the things that has come from this is that um, one of our compounding uh, companies has provided these formulas um, to pharmacies to be able to um, make or formulate these acetaminophen uh, products uh, by compounding. How how much distress have you seen in parents in, in the community uh, when they can't get these you know basically fever reducing and painkillers for for their kids? Yeah, for sure, and, and you know obviously that's an obvious concern for for parents. And um, you know at this point, as we've seen some trickle effect of the medication, we have actually been able to um, provide it most of the time and or um, make these referrals to have the compounded um, product. Uh, we're also as pharmacists and pharmacy teams uh, trained um, to recognize maybe in instances where um, these analgesics or pain medications aren't necessarily um, needed um, and maybe mitigate some of the patients and parents' worries. We have been told, because I'm not a pharmacist and I'm, you know, truth be told, I don't have any children, but um, uh, we've been told that there's a lot of other products, uh, including products for children, but a whole wide range of other pharmaceutical products that are in shortage. Can you go through uh, what you've been facing? Yeah, for sure. Well, drug shortages are, are certainly not new to us in community pharmacy. Um, we see a wide range of products um, regularly um, that we, you know, kind of come and go. Uh, currently, I would say one of the areas um, or one of the uh, product lines that we're seeing uh, a lot of difficulty in is um, ophthalmic or eye products. So I'm uh, drops and solutions that we would normally um, have to use after cataract surgeries or to use for glaucoma. Uh, we're having great difficulty acquiring a number of those. And so working with our ophthalmologists um, locally to try to um, find alternatives for patients. Uh, one of the other ones uh, being impacted by this increase in respiratory illness in children um, is oral suspension for amoxicillin, mm -hmm. um, which we often see treated, you know, being used to treat um, common um, childhood um, illness. Uh, and that, in some uh, from some manufacturers, isn't showing a return um, to supply until early uh, 2023. When you hear about those kind of shortages of, you know, and you say some of them are, are because of the increased demand, but there's also these, these these rotating shortages of certain pharmaceutical products, supply chains, everyone points to that term. What What's your message to governments? What's your message to the people who have some sort of responsibility for this? What, what can be done uh, as opposed to facing all these sporadic shortages of, of vital medications? Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into, um, in my understanding, um, some of these drug shortages. It, it can be the result of an increase in demand, which Obviously, it is what we've seen um, here with the um, increased demand for um, acetaminophen or Tylenol. Um, it can um, be a result of a manufacturing, manufacturer disruption. So there's lots of things, certainly, that go, um, that do come into play. What we have to keep in mind is that obviously Health Canada, you know, here we face um, very strict, um, um, you know, efficacy and safety uh, standards. And so when they're facing these proposals um, for this foreign supply, it's, they do have to ensure that the supply that they're bringing in does meet um, the safety standards that we're accustomed to. Okay, last question. I'm, I'm repeating the first question, but you are optimistic mm -hmm. that in a week's time you will start to see this product on shelves? Yeah, well, we certainly hope that what Health Canada is saying today is is definitely what we're, what is going to happen. And certainly the, the direction that we received from our Provincial Pharmacy Association yesterday is that we do anticipate seeing these in the next 
a week or two, which should hopefully help um, mitigate some of the some of the shortages that we've been seeing. Okay, well, thank you for speaking with us. A lot of parents will be waiting anxiously and fairly happy to be hearing this news. Thanks a lot, uh, Ms. Kennedy. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. When Daniel Smith became Conservative leader and Premier of Alberta about five weeks ago, she promised to shake up the province's health care system. Well, that overhaul started this week as she replaced the province's top public health doctor, Dina Hinshaw, and yesterday she scrapped the province's health services board. She has also promised that there will never again be vaccine or mask mandates in the province, and Daniel Smith says the changes are just starting. To look at it all, I'm joined by freelance political commentator Graham Thompson. Graham Thompson, thanks for uh, joining us. My pleasure. Okay, let's go through. I mean, I just gave the headlines about the two big changes already this week, and that is the basically replacing Dina Henshaw and also scrapping the 12-member uh, public services, uh, the health services board, replacing them with a, an administrator. Describe a bit what's behind these changes. Yeah, this is interesting because there's two ways of looking at this. One is that you know, Albertans are really worried about health care. It's a big issue. It's a big issue across the country. When it comes to Alberta politics, number one issue is, uh, is health care, protecting the health care system. Number two is affordability. But number one is health care. And, and Smith is going to try and tackle things like reducing the wait times for emergency um, care in hospitals and surgery times and ambulance as well. People say, yeah, good idea. The thing is, a couple of things, the AHS is already working on that. And she's blowing up AHS, bringing in Dr. Cowell to, to, to look at this, improving the system in the next six months. That's just ahead of the next provincial election. People are saying, yeah, we should be looking at this. The thing is, well, a couple of things. First of all, we've been down this road a number of times and specifically dealing with nine years ago, uh, the premier at the time, Alison Redford, fired AHS, brought in administrator Dr. John Cowell, the same guy who's now in charge, to fix the system. And at the time, Danielle Smith was the opposition leader for the Wild Rose and said this was just cosmetic changes, just political theater, firing AHS and bringing in Dr. Cowell. She's done the very same thing, expecting to get better results this time around. So people do want things to improve. Everyone you talk to in the system says it can be improved. The thing is, the context here is that Danielle Smith won the UCP leadership very much on this vendetta against the healthcare system, saying that AHS, Alberta Health Services, infringed on people's rights by bringing in uh, mask mandates and other mandates. Uh, Smith was uh, promoting things during the pandemic like ivermectin as treatment, because that's quackery when it comes to treating COVID. And she has been very much running the leadership campaign that she won, of course, last month on this idea of getting back at AHS and punishing them for infringing on people's rights. Her first day as premier, and at news conference, she said that uh, people who willfully were unvaccinated faced the most discrimination of anybody she's ever seen in her 50 years on this planet. So she is very much in this vindictive mode. And here she is firing Dr. Hinshaw, the chief medical officer, and also then firing the AHS board, just saying, I'm doing this to actually help improve things. But the context is this is how she won the leadership um, race by being very vindictive and vengeful against people that she says infringed on Albertans' freedoms. And that played to a certain base, like 42,000 mm -hmm. people made her the leader. So she's still playing to that very angry base 
who thought that COVID and still think COVID is, is overblown, if not actual, uh, an actual hoax. Okay, I guess the other question is, is there another shoe to drop, though, in the sense that you mentioned the, the campaign to become premier and become leader of the UCP. Uh, Danielle Smith also promised even deeper shake-up. She said she was going to basically take aim at all the senior, quote-unquote, all the senior health bureaucrats and the assistant deputy ministers. Is there yet more to come between now and the election? Well, I imagine there will be, because Dr. Cowell, he was brought in uh, nine years ago, um, reduced the uh, senior staff at AHS like by 80 or 90 percent. So the idea here, I think she, she wants to go after the senior management. She's talked about firing people in AHS who don't tow the line, like in other words, her line. There's a lot of uh, red flags right now. There are people right now uh, who have been critical of her saying, okay, fine, we're going to hope that things change. I talked to the um, head of the United Nurses of Alberta yesterday, Heather Smith, saying that she got a phone call yesterday morning from Smith. And that's never happened, she said, that Kenny, the previous premier, completely ignored the UNA, the Nurses Association. Here you have a courtesy call from the premier to Heather Smith, and Smith said, Heather Smith, that is, said, this is a, a great start. But even Smith is saying, look, um, there's no need to fire the entire board and start from scratch. Um, you can make improvements. So they're hoping, people are hoping now that Smith will listen to more people in the healthcare system. But again, they worry that what she's doing basically right now is kicking the responsibility over to Dr. John Cowell, the, um, this new administrator, so that people do have questions about healthcare, why aren't things working, and why there's such long lineup. She can just say, look, I've got someone looking into it. And it may okay. take six months to get a response. And of course, we are in a pre-election period in a way because we are anticipating the spring election. Well, listen, we will check in with you, no doubt, again. I want to thank you for taking the time. Thanks for explaining some of this for us. You're very welcome. The public inquiry into the Trudeau government's invoking of the Emergencies Act has wrapped up its fifth week. In its last week, all eyes will be on the testimony from seven separate federal ministers and Prime Minister Trudeau himself. This week, we began to hear the federal government's version of events, notably from the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor. And on Friday, Nancy Charette from the Privy Council Office also testified before the Commission. There was... Uh a degree of, uh, uh, of um, coordination, I think, amongst uh, this, this set of activities that was very well financed. And so not only did we have what we had, but we had the risk of, and we'd seen this kind of, it would, it would peter out and then it would escalate and peter out and escalate. And, but if you look over the trend, since the beginning of the protests arriving on that beautiful day in Ottawa on the 28th of January, we had seen a trend of it getting worse and escalating and escalating. Taking together the culmination of all of that, it was my it was my view that we met the test of the definition in the CSIS Act that was that was to be put before the governor and council to make a decision on reasonable grounds as to whether or not there was a national emergency that met the threat of threat to the security of Canada, involving the risk a threat of serious violence to people's lives, to their health and safety, to their security. Well, to look at a very eventful week in federal politics, including the inquiry into the Emergencies Act, I'm joined now by two members of the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Tana McCharles is a national political reporter with the Toronto Star, and she's at the site of the inquiry. And Bob Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail, and he's here with me in studio. Both of you, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. 
Hi, Martin. Uh, okay, let's start with the inquiry. For weeks now, we have been hearing at the inquiry from police forces who have pointed the finger at each other uh, for being unprepared or disorganized, who said that they never asked for the Emergencies Act to be invoked, but who have said that it did help somewhat when it was invoked. Yesterday, we started to hear the federal side of thing, the federal, federal framing of the issue. Uh, a crucial figure, uh, Prime Minister's National Security Advisor, Jody Thomas, she described uh, why she decided that the occupation was a threat to national security, and she also put some of the blame for the need of uh, invoking the act at the feet of RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky. Tonda, your thoughts on that pivot and where the testimony, that sort of change that we saw this week. Mm, well, all week long, actually, we've been hearing, it wasn't just Jody Thomas, we've been hearing from senior federal officials, from senior RCMP brass, and then at the top of the national security and intelligence food chain in the PMO and the PCO uh, was Jody Thomas's testimony yesterday. And look, I, I'm, I'm not sure that you could say she laid all the blame or part of the blame at uh, RCMP Commissioner Lucky's feet, but she certainly took a broadside at Lucky for not advising uh, the cabinet directly about the existence of an operational police plan um, that was by then we uh, understand to have been at least finalized but not signed off on and she did not directly advise uh, the ministers at two key cabinet meetings that she was attending uh, virtually um, that she did not believe actually at that point police had exhausted all available legal tools to them and that in fact you know a plan in the works uh, for Ottawa would use provincial emergency measures. So it, it raises the quest, question that had the cabinet ministers at that meeting known those two important facts, uh, might they have delayed the invocation of the act? We don't know. Um, by then, the uh, Windsor Bridge operation had um, uh, been underway for two days. That bridge was, uh, the blockades were lifted. The lanes of traffic weren't open. And what we've heard um, today, Friday, was that some of the very senior security officials in the Privy Council office advising the Prime Minister were very concerned that the Windsor Bridge blockade would uh, start up again, that protests across the country, in their view, were not abating by then. They were, in fact, still escalating the area, some 10 blockades across the country that they were worried about. So um, I think that, you know, hearing the national picture that was being fed into the cabinet decision-making is really interesting. Hearing senior bureaucrats involved in the decision-making taking shots at each other and also saying, look, we've got a whole new definition, we've got a broader definition of what the threat to Canada was for invoking that act than, you know, you might see in narrow pieces of legislation. So all fascinating testimony leading up to a blockbuster week next week when we hear from the cabinet ministers and the prime minister. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, Bob, your, your paper was commenting on the sort of repercussions on RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky, as Tonda mentions, uh, if not blaming her for the Emergencies Act, obviously there was, and she admitted, Brenda Lucky this week said that she admitted she regretted not bringing up these vital points that there was a police plan to take care of the occupation of downtown Ottawa. Uh, your paper's been talking about the kind of reputational damage she sustained. Well, look, uh, this was a very bad week for Commissioner Lucky. Her performance before the, uh, the commission was, um, to say the least, uh, rather disturbing. Uh, uh, Tonda has outlined some of the testimony, but throughout the testimony she was uh, vacillating, very weak, um, and uh, this is not the first time. I mean, she uh, 
made a mess of the Nova Scotia inquiry into the mass murder mm -hmm. uh, when she berated her officers and said that they uh, should have released details on the guns that were used to kill those people and um, uh, because she wanted to help the Liberals' gun legislation. That spawned parliamentary committees. Uh, she, she almost immediately after she became a commissioner, she landed in hot water about saying that there may not be systematic uh, discrimination within the RCMP, which is ludicrous. So she's not going to get reappointed. I yeah. can, I'll put money on that. Um, I, the senior officials I've spoken in the government have been very disillusioned, dissatisfied with her performance, not only in the inquiry and what Tonda has outlined, yeah. but on these other issues that I have. Um, so she won't get uh, reappointed because she shouldn't, but she shouldn't have been appointed in the first place. She just, she was a mid-level uh, depot commander. She had no experience in Ottawa, and uh, you know you need to have headquarters experience because you are dealing with politicians and cabinet, and you need to have that kind of experience, which she did not have. Okay, let's turn to and Tonda alluded to it, and I think I alluded to it. Next week is going to be a week. It's in a way, it's a culmination of the whole inquiry. It's going to be a blockbuster week because we're going to hear from seven fe federal ministers, uh, public safety minister, emergency measures minister, finance minister, Christopher Freeland as well, as well as the prime minister himself. What are you anticipating? What are you watching for, Tonda? Look, I'm most keen, I think, to understand what was in the mindset of two of the key ministers, the Public Safety Minister and the Emergency Preparedness Minister, yeah. Mendicino and Blair. And then, of course, what was in the mind of the Prime Minister. How were they uh, processing the information and advice coming into them? And how were they viewing uh, the police level of police dysfunction that we've seen ample evidence of at this inquiry. Um, to what extent did they get, you know, we've heard at the inquiry police agencies saying, oh, well, you know, the tools were useful, but they weren't needed. We were going to take care of the situation when, in fact, they weren't. Things weren't happening. Uh, only at Windsor were things moving. And then the, the, the next morning, uh, Monday morning, when the Emergencies Act was invoked, at Coots did we see an enforcement action uh, against a cache of weapons, but it was the protesters themselves, once that happened, that decided to leave because they realized their message was um, completely obscured. So I, I, I want to hear from those ministers. They were in key decision-making uh, positions, and they were, I'm pretty sure, as a former Crown prosecutor and a former police chief who uh, was at the G20, that their advice to Trudeau and the fellow cabinet ministers was uh, pretty, pretty informative and, and key. And I guess everybody wants to know um, why Trudeau, who throughout the global pandemic and throughout the rail blockades of 2020, did not ever invoke the Emergencies Act and had never really wanted to because his father had invoked its predecessor, the War Measures Act. Why is it that they got to that point that they felt okay. it necessary to bring down the hammer of the Emergencies Act? Okay, um, Bob, because I want to get to another issue. But uh, what are you watching for? Well, I mean, look, uh, uh, the public safety minister, uh, Marco Mendicino, had said that uh, the, the government invoked the, the Emergencies Act on the advice of the police. That the police that asked for it. That is not true. Yeah. They've all testified that that is not true. In fact, we now even have the CSIS, our spy agency, saying it did not meet the threshold uh, required for a national, uh, a national security emergency to invoke that. 
So I want to know, I think Marco Mendocino is going to be in trouble. Uh, he's go, I like to hear what he's going to say about to get himself yeah. out of that yeah. mess. Yeah. But also, how, what, what led the Prime Minister to do this? If CISA says it didn't meet the act, mm -hmm. who was telling you that this was the right thing yeah. to do? Or, as we heard from Jody Thomas, they are redefining the well, yeah, nature but you don't of the national you, emergency. If you're going to redefine it, then change the law yeah. to redefine it. You don't redefine mm -hmm. it before. Okay, we will be watching with interest. So I want to get to the last, uh, the second subject of this week, and it really is one the Prime Minister has uh, wrapped up his Asian tour, and this under this w this was an undercurrent for the entire three summit tour: the ASEAN summit, the G20 summit, and the APEC summit, which is just wrapped up. Canada-China relations. Justin Trudeau raised the issue of Chinese interference uh, with Canadians and with Canadian elections. He raised it with Chinese President Xi Jinping. The next day, President Xi scalded the Prime Minister for making the discussion public, and more importantly, from people who watched that tape. He said there would be consequences. Bob, what are you watching for? Well, I, look, I don't know whether there's going to be any consequences or not. I mean, you know, they've, they've punished us in, in the past, but our, our trade is actually up with them. Yeah. So I don't think we're going to be invited for any sit-down with the Chinese for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but what, I, what we need to see is, instead of Mr. Trudeau um, grandstanding, how about doing something concretely? For example, bringing in a Foreign Registry Act, which... Uh, uh, members of Parliament have been asking for, including members of Parliament who were defeated, we believe because of Chinese influence. Um, that's what we need. So yeah. we know who is working for the Chinese uh, in public life and in corporations. And, mm -hmm. and, and the, the Americans have it, the Australians have it. It's a very effective tool. So, Mr. Trudeau, if you're serious about this interference, do something about it. Okay, Tonda, briefly, what are you uh, comments on this overwhelming or underlying? Uh, theme uh, during all of this tour in Asia, the Canada-China relations. Yeah, Canada-China relations, look at, pick any Asian country, their relationship with China is also sort of a dominant factor. Uh, Canada, it's interesting that Justin Trudeau went there without having formulated his Indo-Pacific strategy. Let's see um, if there's going to be a big shift or changes as a result. Um, will he feel that he needs to take a tougher line on China? Will he do some of the things that Bob suggested? I think those are still big questions. And, uh, well, some say that his, the policy was semi-released by Madame Jolie in the week before he left. But, uh, yeah, it's still, uh, the, the government says officially the Indo-Pacific strategy has still not been released. Right. Um, and, and, and it matters if it's just a white paper or if it's actually actions and money to boot. Right. And you spoke to our new, uh, Donna, you had to sit down with a new uh, ambassador to China. She mentioned that as well. It was a question about when will the strategy be coming out. Mm -hmm. You should be getting it when well, it comes I mean, back. <laughs> Any, yeah, I expect it within about a couple of weeks after Trudeau gets back. That's it. They've been promising. But it you by know, the end of I the will month. say this: this is. A, I mean, what we've seen from the overview that uh, uh, Melanie Jolie gave us yep. uh, is that there is a, a real movement from the government to recognize. Uh, the incredible threat that China is facing, not only in, in the Pacific, but also the yeah. world. This is a, a view that they have not, uh, it's taken them a long time to get to this point. All of our Western allies have reached that point. We're finally catching up. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. I mean, the government should be uh, complimented for that. And we've seen the, not only uh, the, the Indo-Pacific strategy overview, but we've seen uh, both uh, Ms. Freeland and uh, the innovation minister, mm -hmm. you know, stopping Chinese takeovers of critical minerals, Ms. Freeland talking about how we're going to have to be friend sharing with other uh, com companies so we don't countries so we don't just rely yeah. on on China which we've discovered 
uh, during the pandemic, uh, the supply line, uh, supply chain problems we have. So uh, I, I think the government's finally getting to a point yeah. where um, we're taking China more seriously. Melanie Jolie, who openly uh, warned Canadian business people doing business with China that they are going to be, according to her, according to the government, dealing with a, a regime which she says is going to be less and less uh, respectful of international standards and right. international law. Listen, we will watch for that. I want to thank both of you. And uh, Tonda, we'll let you get back to the inquiry. Thanks for joining us, both of you. Thank Thanks, you. Martin. And a reminder, we have continuing coverage of the Public Order Emergency Commission right here on CPAC. You can also tune in to our live stream of each day's testimony on our website at cpac.ca. And it's there where the full proceedings will also be archived and available for you. Well, that's all for this edition of Primetime Politics. On behalf of all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching and have a great weekend.